Actually, we're going to speak about a topic today that is very controversial. It's based on a text, Hebrews 6, which is quite complex and complicated. It's led to all kinds of discussion and debate over centuries. And because of its complexity, as you can notice, Brother Chuck bailed out and gave it to me. You see, you see, that's what he does, folks. I carry the show around here. He walks around looking good, and I take the hits. So uh, let me preface what we're going to do today by reading you an actual story about a lady who has had a struggle, and this is what she has to say about it. So listen, Teresa McBain has a secret one she's terrified to reveal. I'm currently, she says, an active pastor, but I'm also an atheist. I live a double life. I feel good on Monday, but by Thursday, when Sunday's right around the corner, I start having stomach aches, headaches. I just know that I have to stand up and say things I no longer believe in. I have to portray myself in a way that's totally false. McBain glances nervously around the room. It's a Sunday. Normally, she would be preaching at her church in Tallahassee, Florida, but here she is sneaking away to the American Atheists Convention in Bethesda, Maryland. Her secret is taking a toll, eating at her conscience as she goes about her pastoral duties week after week. Two sermons every Sunday, singing hymns, praying for the sick, when she doesn't believe in the God she's praying to. She's had no one to talk to, at least not in her Christian community, and so her iPhone has become her confessor, where she records her private fears and frustrations. On my way to church again, another Sunday. Man, this is getting worse, she tells her iPhone in one recording. How did I get myself in this mess Sometimes I think to myself, if I could just go back a few years and not ask the questions and just be one of those sheep and blindly follow and not know the truth, it would be so much easier. I just, uh, I mean, I'd keep my job, but I can't do that. I know it's a lie. I, I know it's all false. McBain, 44, was raised in a conservative Southern Baptist home. In fact, her dad was a pastor. She felt the call of God when she was six years old. She had questions, of course, about conflicts in the Bible for, and, and, uh, and on the role of women. She says she sometimes felt she was serving a taskmaster of a God whose standards were never quite met. For years, McBain set her concerns aside, but when she became a United Methodist pastor some nine years ago, she started asking sharper questions. She thought they'd make her faith stronger. In reality, she says, as I worked through them, I found that religion had so many holes in it and that I just progressed through the stages where I, I couldn't believe it. The questions haunted her. Is Jesus really the only way to God? Would a loving God torment people in hell for eternity? Is there any evidence of God at all? And one day she crossed a line. I just kind of realized, I mean, it was a eureka moment. I I'm an atheist, she says. I don't believe and in the moment that I uttered that word, I stumbled and choked on that word, atheist. But it felt right. Driving to church on Sunday, March 18th, McBain realized she could no longer bear her double life. I've got to come out. I've got to get out of it, she told her phone. It used to terrify me what people's reaction would be. But it's been so long now, and I've done this for so long, I don't even care. 
The sermon she gave that day was her last. On March 26th at the American Atheist Convention in Bethesda, McBain well, she seemed almost giddy. The day before, after she, the day before, she decided she would go before the conference's fifteen hundred or so non-believers and announce that she is officially now an atheist. I'm nervous, she says, but at the same time, I'm so excited. I slept like a baby last night because I knew I wasn't going to have to live a lie anymore. Such freedom. Moments later, in the darkened, cavernous conference room, McBain steps on stage. My name is Teresa, she begins. I'm a pastor currently serving a Methodist church, at least up to this point. The audience laughs. And I'm an atheist, she said. Hundreds of people jump to their feet. They hoot and they clap for more than a minute. McBain then apologizes to them for being, as she put it, a hater. I was the one on the right track. You were the ones that were going to burn in hell, she says. Now I'm happy to say, as I stand before you right now, I'm going to burn in hell with you. A few minutes later, McBain strides off the stage and into a waiting crowd. One man is crying as he tells her that her speech is one of the most moving things I've heard in years. Another woman says she, too, had been a born-again Christian. Join the club, she says, as she hugs McBain. I've never felt so appreciated and cared for. McBain says later, noting that she's left one community, Christianity, for another. Back at home, McBain doesn't hesitate when she's asked what she misses most about her old life. I miss the music, she says. McBain sang in church choirs and worship bands most of her life. And even though she no longer believes the words, she still catches herself singing the songs from time to time. She says she also misses the relationship. She'll often pick up the phone to call someone but then realize she can't do it anymore. She misses the ritual and regularity of church life. It's what I know. It's what I, it's what I knew. And I still struggle with it. Life is just different, she says. When it's pointed out that she hasn't said whether or not she misses God, McBain pauses, no, 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 not, not really. I can't say that I do. So I read this to you at great length because it leads to this question. Did this dear lady, Teresa McBain, did she lose her salvation? Or is she someone who never in reality possessed it? I debated putting that to a vote because this is a democracy. But I don't want to do it because I think it might lead to a church split. And I don't want to do that either. It's a tough question. I mean, surely she seems to have all many of the characteristics of Christianity. She not only was in a church, she prepared to be the pastor thereof. She preached every Sunday, sang in the choir, was involved in the worship program of the church, hung out in the Christian community, all the rest. Those looked like all the external attributes of being truly born again, but do the external attributes really prove that one is born again? Well, your answer to it leads to this answer. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? So that's the question before us today. And, and uh, the text before us obligates us to address it. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? It's in Hebrews chapter 6. It's a very rough passage of scripture. We'll look at it. Again, remember, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is making a point. It's this. Jesus is better 
better than everything and everyone. In this case, he's saying Jesus is better than anything you may be tempted to leave him for. That's kind of the theme of what we're about to read. Now, in order to understand the text rightly, I think it would be helpful for me to remind you of the recipients of, of the letter. In other words, context. Context is everything when you study Scripture. What's the context? Well, we know that the context is of someone addressing a specific group of people named Hebrews. Hence, the title of the book, Hebrews. That's not dis- subject to dispute. Uh, he's speaking to Jews. But though they have their Jewishness in common, imagine them in a room like this. He's speaking to them. Though they have their Jewishness, their ethnicity in common, that's where the um, commonality ends because there were three groups of Hebrews. One group were like us. They believed in Jesus as their Messiah. They were no different than us. You can call them Messianic Jews, Jewish believers, Jewish followers of Jesus, whatever it is. They had accepted him as their Lord. So they're Jews by ethnicity, and then they have accepted the Lord just like you and I have. That's one group. In, that's a subgroup in the big group. A second group of people are those who flat out denied that Jesus was the Messiah. For some reason, they were still there in the gathering. Why, I don't know. Maybe friends invited them. Maybe they really enjoyed being with the people, even though they wanted nothing to do with the people's God. So they were non-believers. First group were Jews who believed. Second group, Jews who just as clearly did not believe. Now, the third group are Jews who said they believed, but didn't. <laughs> they're, they're Jews who professed Christ as Savior, but really were not truly born again. And so you can see, the, though this is written, you know, centuries ago and to the Jews, you see how it applies. Because in any church on any given Sunday today, you have the same three breakdowns. You have those who are truly born-again believers. You have those who are flat-out not. And you have those who give an indication that they are, but probably, possibly are not. That's the way it is whenever there's a gathering, even like this one today. So that being the context, let's take a look. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ... Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe he's addressing now the third subgroup, Jews who came close to Christ and Christians, but never embraced him by faith. That's the group who professed Christ, but never possessed Christ. And they knew of the elementary thinking of Christ. Elementary doesn't mean unimportant. It means basic. They knew basic things, the kinds of things, which are really not distinctions of Christianity. They're kind of the general spiritual truths that any religious person would embrace. They knew something about a Messiah to come, about a Savior, about the need to be saved. And so the writer is saying, let's leave these elementary teachings about Christ, and instead let's press on to maturity. You've got to move past general spiritual truths, and you have to move on with specificity to a personal embrace of Jesus Christ as your Savior. The writer is essentially saying, let's move on, not laying again a foundation of, now he names some things, the first, repentance from dead works. You know, that's something any religious person would accept 
And that is, you know, our, our, our efforts fall short of God. Let's repent of dead works. Let's be sincere and loyal to the deity. You may not even name the deity Jesus. Every religious person, no matter what the religion, can accept this very foundational elementary truth that in order to be right with the deity, we've got to be sincere. Let's move past dead works. Let's let's and 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 let's let's not lay again a foundation of dead works and of faith towards God. Any religious person speaks about faith towards God. Muslim people speak about faith in God, Catholic people, any I mean anybody, Jewish people. <laughs> faith toward is just basic. We're not getting to Christ yet at all. There's nothing in this list that indicates any distinctively Christian perspective yet. These are just folks in the audience. They're part of a Christian gathering, but that doesn't mean they're distinctively born again at all. In fact, the writer said, let's move past just basics about faith towards God. Also, verse 2, instruction about washing. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> in Judaism, there are lots of washings. You wash your hands before every meal, sometimes after meals. It's not for hygienic purposes. It's symbolic of, ser- of, of spiritual defilement. And you're ceremonially cleaning yourself. If you, if you go to Israel today, you can see Orthodox Jews doing this before a meal. There'll be a basin with a cup. And you fill the cup up about three times. And you empty it on one hand. And then you do it on the other. And, and what happens in Judaism is the religious leaders spend a whole lot of time talking about the proper way in which you're supposed to engage in these washings. And so the writer is saying, come on, guys, let's move on past from that. You know, the, being right about how to wash your hands is not going to get it. So these are just elementary truths. Laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Every religious person talks about those things, life after death and eternal judgment. Once again, there is nothing distinctively Christian in any of this. These are just the basics of spirituality. And the writer is saying the mere fact that you are embracing the basics of spirituality means nothing. You don't get points with God by washing your hands right or by believing there's life after death. It just doesn't work. Move past this is what he's saying. And in fact, he says in verse 3, this we will do. If God permits, in other words, if God moves in a person's heart and mind, that person will be moved by God's grace past all this religious foundational fundamental stuff to a precise understanding and appreciation of who Jesus Christ is. It's kind of what he's saying. And now we get in deep water verses four and on. So this is where you want to pray that the rapture would come like right now. So um, this, is, this is a rough one. Um, many are divided over this. I'm going to share with you before the class is over what I think is the right perspective on whether you can lose your salvation or not. You're free, obviously, to embrace whatever position you think is most biblical. Here's what it says. For in the case of those, now the writer of Hebrews is addressing a particular people group they're called the those now as i read this you th- you give some thought to are the those believers or ones who just profess to know christ so here we go for in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the holy spirit 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The question is, are they believers who've lost their salvation or are they ones who came close to Christ but never embraced Christ? They didn't lose their salvation because they never had it to begin with. That's that's the question. So there's about five characteristics given there. I'd like to take them each in turn. So here's the first. In the case of those who've been enlightened, I think it's a mistake to conclude this means enlightened in terms of accepting the gospel. There's all kinds of enlightenment. For instance, you may be one in this group here today who enjoys the Christian community. You like the songs. You enjoy the people. They're quite friendly. And even if you're here not to to draw near to Christ, you still could derive some benefit just by being in the atmosphere because it's a Bible-centered atmosphere. So you have a teacher in here. You have a preacher in there. And some of what those people are imparting could could fall on you <laughs> almost, almost by accident and enlighten you. It's possible for you to be in a Christian environment and learning more about Christ and yet not knowing him in a personal way. That's very possible. So I don't think this phrase proves that it's addressing those who are truly born again. Second phrase, and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, Christ is this gift, this heavenly gift come from heaven. What does it mean to taste of him? Well, it doesn't mean to actually um, uh, ingest him, take him in. When you taste a meal, that doesn't mean you consume the meal. It could mean you sample it. Yeah, these are people, if you're in a Christian environment, you're coming to church, not for Christ, but for other reasons, of course you're going to get an inkling of who Jesus is. Of course there's going to be some measure of influence upon you in the presence of those who are seeking him. But that doesn't mean you've embraced him personally. Third characteristic, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now you might say, no, that's a clincher. Only Christians can partake of the Holy Spirit. That's not true. The Holy Spirit always existed. He indwells believers. He does not indwell non-believers But the influence of the Holy Spirit can be on the saved and unsaved, just like the rain and the sun can affect the saved and the unsaved. When preachers pray, oh, God, send us your spirit today. Fill our church with your spirit. God answers when that happens. Well, the presence and influence of the Holy Spirit can be felt by anyone in the room. But that doesn't mean you have him in your life. You can partake of him without actually personally ever having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, the next characteristic, and have tasted the good word of God. Uh, There's beautiful Kathleen Wall today who's running for office. Please pray for her. That's not easy to do. We're grateful to have Kathleen with us again today. This is not true of her, but it is true of many. Uh, politicians, especially during the campaign season, they quote scripture at various times. (laughs) Everyone, whether they know the author of the book or not, seems to have tasted in some measure the good word of God. You hear this in every inaugural address, every 
Every new president's speechwriter inserts a verse of scripture in there, usually out of context, usually not applied. Uh, the mayor from Indiana, who's front runner and on the Democrat side, Boudigay, I think his name is, very articulate, likable, in my opinion, lost person. Um, uh, he quotes scripture. <laughs> He's discovered um, the good word of God. There are, in the contents of the Bible, lots of moralistic principles. <laughs> uh, Good sound bites, <laughs> things you could extract from it, because you have some, you attach some value to it. If nothing else, it's influenced history and the culture. But that doesn't mean the Word of God is seen by you to be the, the guide and rule for your life. That just means it's something nice to say, you know, a couple points, a poem, a verse of scripture, vote for me, kind of a deal. That doesn't mean you're a Christian at all. In fact, you know the parable of the sower? Seed, which is the word of God, falls on different kinds of soils. In one case, rocky soil. Listen to what Matthew says about it. The one on whom seed was sown on rocky places. Well, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Doesn't denigrate it, disrespect it, receive it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That's the kind of person I think the writer of Hebrews is speaking about. This is a person who had some affinity towards the word of God, but has borne no fruit whatsoever in that person's life. And you really see that person's true convictions when it becomes uh, a negative to identify with Christ. You see, that's the concern of the writer of Hebrews. This was a time of persecution. So the people in that third group professing to know Christ and hanging out with Christians, they were tempted no longer to do it, but to get back under Judaism because they were being persecuted for their identification with Christ. Well, why take it on the chin for identifying with Christ when you really don't even believe in him? That would make no sense. So that's who he's kind of speaking about here. Yeah, go ahead, Al. Yeah, that's a very good point. Al said, in case you didn't hear, Satan knows the word of God too. So knowing it and being known by it are two different things. Here's another characteristic of this group and the powers. They, they've tasted not only the good word of God, but also they tasted uh, the powers of the age to come. What does that mean? Divine power. In our last class, a lady gave a testimony um, she received a um, pretty serious breast cancer uh, diagnosis, which seems to be happening more and more and more with so many of our wonderful people. Uh, something in her left breast, something in her right breast. Well, as it turns out, she went back and no, no evidence of any, any pathology whatsoever. You can think what you want. She's praising God, her great physician, for having healed her. He can do that, you know. Doesn't always choose to, but he could. Well, uh, she gave that testimony. Now, you, you could have been in that class, and you may not know the God she knows, but now you know something of him. You, he, you've heard something of the power. He, some people claim he, he can manifest in their life. So can you see, even though you don't, you don't know the miracle-working God, still you can have some knowledge of the powers of the... You can have a taste, a, a, a little sampling of the powers of the age to come. I think some of these people 
who are being addressed here might even have been there when the Lord performed his miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000. Remember when he said to them, but you're not hanging out with me because the miracle points uh, out to you that I'm the Savior. You're hanging out with me because I fill your, your bellies. So you can experience and taste the miraculous uh, signs, manifestations of Almighty God by not know him at all. So I guess you can discern from the way I've handled this text. I, I don't believe this is talking about true believers who've lost their salvation at all. I don't think they were true believers. I think they're ones in the Christian community who embraced Christ to a certain measure, not in a personal way. They like belonging to the club. It's a safe environment. It's a good place for your kids. Every once in a while, they even have game night. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a cool sort of a deal. You got to, you know, you want to be in affiliation. You want to be in association with, with other people. You can socialize. And I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why people can come into churches and not really be seeking Christ at all. Wheat and tares, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. And so as in the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, so too today, whenever, again, there's a gathering, you have those three kinds of people, true believers, false, uh, true believers, non-believers, and those who are not true believers at all. Every once in a while, it surprises me, we've had it here, that you show up to church one Sunday and in the baptistry is someone, oh my goodness, testifying i've never really been a believer oh i've been baptized before i oh yeah i've joined the church i've been a member for a long time but i've never personally accepted christ every once in a while you hear this well my jaw drops frankly when i see that then when i collect myself later behind the scenes i try to make it my business to go to that person give that person a hug and and say i so much appreciate and respect you for your courage this was a very difficult thing you did. Wonderful that you made this decision. What surprises me is it looked like all the external attributes would have pointed to the fact that that person knew the Lord. I was in England years ago in the service. I made friends with a rector. That's like a pastor of a British church. It was built in the 12th century, the building was. We became friends. I was there on Sunday, often on Sunday, big beautiful pipe organ it was played in a magnificent way at the end of the service i went to the pastor we had we had lunch he was a good guy and i said my goodness that organist was played so beautifully it was so moving and he told me you would be surprised to know that organist does not know jesus as savior what do you mean said i, I said in england it's kind of an art form just to go about playing these old organs and they go from church to church to do so that person doesn't even believe in god said he well, my jaw dropped there as well. So what I'm trying to say is uh, nothing makes you a Christian except accepting Christ. <laughs> not being with Christians, not singing Christian songs, not going on Christian missions trips, and not joining Christian churches. All those are good things. None of those things save. Only the Savior saves. And so it's possible to have all the externals and yet not to have embraced the Savior. In that case, you don't lose. It's not a true Christian who's lost salvation. It's a professing Christian who never possessed it to begin with. How can I make a statement like that? Well, before we end in the next few minutes, I'll just share a smattering of verses to, I hope, give us a, a fresh appreciation for the extreme drama of what it means to be saved. You don't just waltz into it. 
This is a magnificent supernatural work of God that is so outstanding and astounding. It's irreversible. I'll show you in just a second. Well, anyway, uh, furthermore, this text goes on to say, uh, again in verse 4, in the case of those who have once, and then it listed all these characteristics, then verse 6, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God. They put him to open shame. Now, those who say you can lose your salvation will, when asked, then say, but you can be born again, again, by accepting Christ again. So uh, this text says that's not true. So if you hold to the fact that a Christian can lose his salvation, you have to accept the fact that's it then. There is no repentance. You, we just read it there in verse 6. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying if someone has been exposed to the gospel message in full measure so that they know what it is to be saved but walk away from it, they, in essence, are crucifying Christ again. They're not an acceptor of Christ. They're a crucifier of Christ, and there is no repentance for them. In other words, if you refuse to accept Christ, he will not impose himself upon you. That's essentially what, what it's saying. So um, the text, the text this, is, this, is like, this is not a Christian who has a bad day. Who doesn't? Uh, I mean, there's no such thing as a sinless Christian. <laughs> I mean, but, but we sin. That's the way it is. And there are times when there could be periods of time we don't talk to God. We don't want to hang out with God's people. We, we, we don't want anything to do with him. I understand that. We're not talking about sinless perfection. But that's a whole lot different than the person who says, you know, I tried Jesus. He didn't work for me. In fact, faith in him is a big lion sham. That's a whole lot different. What this lady, Teresa, did is a whole lot different than a Christian having a dry period. This is a lady who became an apostate. This is a lady who, in her behavior, shows salvation never took she didn't walk away from it. She walked away from church. In fact, what she misses is not God, she says. She misses the songs. And she misses hanging out with other Christians. Okay. Then it goes on in verses 7 and 8 to give kind of by way of a, a metaphor, uh, something that I think supports my position. Look, ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those who's, for whose sake it is also tilled, that kind of ground receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. You get two kinds of ground. One bears fruit, one the uh, It doesn't. Same rain, different results. We can say that the rain is a symbol of the gospel. Same gospel, what does it do? It softens some and it hardens others. There it is. What's the evidence that it's been, your heart has been softened by the gospel? You bear fruit and God blesses. What's the evidence that it hasn't? Thorns and thistles. No change in your particular lifestyle. So once again, I think this uh, supports the position that the prior verses are not talking about a fruitful Christian who can lose his salvation I think it's talking about a false professor who, professing to know Christ, but who in effect doesn't. And then verse 9, to me, this is the clincher. If I was in a court of law and arguing, stating verse 9, I think the judge would be forced to say, you won the case. Look, verse 9. But 
just that word is moving us from what has previously been said by way of contrast. But, beloved, show me one place in the Bible where an unsaved person is ever referred to in this manner. Never. We are moving from an address to those who claim to know Christ but didn't to those who claim to know Christ and do. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning them. Doesn't say that, does it? What's the pronoun? You. Can you see the movement? Look at verse 6. It is impossible to renew them. Now we're moving from the pronoun them to the pronoun you. Why? Because we're moving from an address to the unsaved to an address to the saved. Saved people are the we, the you, not the them. The them are the unsaved people. Beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, real things that accompany salvation, not just hanging out with other Christians. And what are those things? Verse 10, God's not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name. How? In having ministered and it's still ministering to the saints. And those are two evidences of salvation. You've loved God and you've shown it by having ministered to the saints. Believers. That's what that means. You're still ministering to uh, believers. Holy moly. Watch out for that. (laughs) In having ministered, you started and you're continuing. So the key mark of the legitimacy of salvation is that it continues. Continuation, continuation, continuation. One school of theology calls it um, the perseverance of the saints. I agree with the concept. I just don't like the term because it, it puts the emphasis on the believer to hang in there. I'm persevering. I don't think that's it. I like the term the preservation of the saints. If you are truly born again, then the one who caused that in you preserves you until the end. There is no loss of what God began. Now, to prove that point, I just want to share with you a smattering of Scripture. Here's one, John 6, verses 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. I'm not hanging on to Jesus. My grip is not strong enough to hang on. He's hanging on to me. That's the basis of eternal security. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, I've done that, I beheld the Son and I believe in him. What does that mean? I I lean on him as the one who's the answer to my sin problem. I trust him for the forgiveness of my sin. For everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Now you please tell me, if you can forfeit it, in what sense can you call it eternal I thought eternal means it doesn't end. It ceases to become eternal life. If it's life, you can forfeit. But this says, no. I'll give him eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. God's giving a promise. I began something in you, and you can go to the bank on this. I'll raise you up on the last day. What happens in between, Lord, if I drift, if I do this? What do you mean? (laughs) That means you're a wayward, rebellious, obstinate kid. (laughs) And that's why I died for you. That's why you need me. How about this passage? John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep 
Jesus says, hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give, once again, eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Here's the saved person in Jesus' hand, and around Jesus' hand is the Father's hand. Now, how's that person going to get out of that? You're not hanging on to anybody. You're being held by the hand of Jesus, and you're being held by the hand of the Father. You're not losing anything. Philippians 1.6 I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, who began the work of salvation in you? Now, here's where we Baptists, I think, cause people to stumble. We make it so easy to be saved. Just pray this prayer. Just walk this aisle. Now, it starts that way. But that's no guarantee of salvation. That just means someone walked the aisle. Someone uttered some words. You can train a monkey to utter words. You don't want to put uh, uh, the impression in people's minds that they can do something to be saved. It has to be a legitimate supernatural work of God, the evidence of which is only there months after the person makes that decision. I know we Baptists love to support our numbers. 300 were saved, 400 were saved, 600 were saved, 800 kids in vacation Bible school were saved. Really? I'm thrilled they all heard the gospel. Don't misunderstand. But you don't know that they were saved. How can you know? Well, according to verse 10, are they ministering and still ministering? Are they living? Is there continuation? That kind of, that kind of deal. And so uh, the work of salvation is begun by God. If it's not by you, if it's begun by God, he can finish it. And that's what it says. You can't finish it if you began it. Now, by the way, that's why certain other religious groups and denominations, I think, don't want to allow us the notion of eternal security and so they insert into the mix a kind of a partnership in salvation between you and God. Jesus did part of it. you got to do the rest. Jesus did not pay it all. And so in Roman Catholicism, now you may be from a Catholic background. I'm stepping on your toes. I don't mean to do that. I'm just telling you what Catholic theologians would tell you. In Roman Catholic theology, there is no notion of eternal security. You can lose your salvation. In order to secure it, you have to partake of the sacraments, including the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, in which the very real presence of Christ is there to you. Those elements are not symbolic in Catholic theology. They're actually turned into the body and blood of Christ. It's called the bloodless mass. Well, you need to keep taking in Christ, but the only way you can do that is through the Catholic Church and through the administration of the priest. Well, that's one way to build up your membership. Good night. If the only way to sustain your salvation is to partake of uh, Holy Communion, but it can only administered, be administered properly by the, the Catholic priest in the Catholic Church. Well, then you sign me up. But that's not true. What Jesus did totally and completely settled the issue, the sin problem. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, I did part of it and you got to finish the rest. But all religions do that because then you get to be proud about it. You, you have a role in salvation. Now, look, here's the danger. If you have any role in uh, procuring your own salvation, sure, you could lose it. <laughs> sure. And that's why you don't have a role. You receive. You receive. That's why Paul says, I can only brag in the cross. 
can't brag about being a Catholic, being a Baptist, being a this or that. I can only boast in the, in the cross. How about this one? 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I got my reservation there already. You are protected by the power of God, not your own power or willfulness, You're protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. All that awaits the saved person is for the revelation of his salvation. You see, here's what happens. You don't just walk an aisle, pray a prayer. You are moved from what the Bible calls a domain of darkness over here to the kingdom of his beloved son over here. Now, how do you get out of that? You're born. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation the oldest pastor how do you get to be unnew look at i got three boys do you think they're obedient all the time do you think they as they grew up and even now do you think they always do what their father what their mother is pleased about but at one time do they get unsunned at what point in life do i unsun them tell me and this the analogy of birth in the physical sense is applied to our spiritual rebirth born again we're not in womb to come out of the womb, but, but God uses that analogy to show us. You see how irreversible it is when you have a kid? Even if the kid makes bad decisions, um, is rebellious and all the rest, when do you unson or undaughter your child? When does God do that with us? You see what I mean? If salvation depended upon you continue doing something to, to, to sustain the favor of God, you could lose it. But if it's all of God's doing, grace, grace, God's grace. In fact, there's not a person in this room who's truly saved who could even have responded to Christ unless he did a work before. I know that challenges baptistic thought, you know, where we just offer the gospel so sometimes so cheaply. Utter these words, and then I, I count you, I count you. You know, uh, I take groups to Israel, sometimes on missions trips. We don't see a big harvest of professions of faith. I come back, and first thing people ask, how many came to know Christ? Uh, because you can come back from other areas, and people report, you know, uh, you know, 3,000 people accepted Christ. Well, I, I give the same answer. I cannot tell you for sure who accepted Christ on our Israel trip, and you can't tell me for sure how many accepted Christ on your trip. You can just tell me how many people prayed. (laughs) You and I both are going to have to wait to get to heaven to see. I can tell you in Israel, we took every opportunity to share the gospel, and then we have to leave the results to God. I can tell you this, nobody is born again who God doesn't arouse and quicken. and That's the sovereignty sovereignty of God. It's an entire work of God. How do you undo the work of God? See, that's required if you're going to lose salvation. See, a Christian is redeemed. A Christian is not someone who's a better, a better model, <laughs> a better version of who you were. <laughs> no, no, no. A Christian is entirely redeemed. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things 
like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I'm not an improved version of who I used to be. This is no New Year's resolution. I'm not trying harder. I done got redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Please tell me how you reverse all that. You could. God won't. He doesn't unbirth you. He doesn't unredeem you. It doesn't work that way. Listen to this one. Um, I'm almost done, so don't worry too much. Romans 8, listen to this one, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, and I don't know if you buy this, but before you knew him, he knew you <laughs> as a believer. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's spoken of as as if it already took place. There's no believer in here who would disagree with this. When you accepted Christ, you became immediately justified. It's a legal pronouncement. It's a judge laying down the gavel and saying, case dismissed. I had a case against you. You're a sinner. But now you're acquitted because Jesus, whom you accepted, died for your sin. That's called justification. You don't grow into it. It's a legal pronouncement. Uh, And the text I just read said, those whom he justified, he also glorified. You're not glorified yet. That's a future event. That's when you get a sinless body. You don't have a sinless body. Sin still rules in our members, you see. Justification took away the penalty of sin in an instant glorification takes away the presence of sin we're not there yet when we're in the midst in the presence of jesus that will happen but justification is evidence of the certainty of glorification that's the point now what happens between the two we have ups and downs rex sang a song in our first hour and he used the phrase stumbling toward heaven sure that's all of us I'm not marching to Zion. I'm not. Mar- I'm stumbling to Zion. So are you. But it doesn't matter. I'm getting there anyway. So in between justification and glorification, though the road is rocky and I get off track, I'm still certain of the end result because if I was justified, I will be glorified. Don't you see? Now, I want to know how you can interfere with that. So um, how about this one? This is a rather obscure verse, but I'll share it with you. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Once again, he's not giving us conditional life, part-time life. Eternal life is eternal life. Closing verse, and I do promise this is the end, Hebrews 7.25. We'll get to Hebrews 7 maybe sometime. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. That's what a Christian does. It's someone who draws near to God through Christ as the mediator. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, and that's the basis of my eternal security. I have an advocate risen from the dead, Jesus sitting at the power hand of Almighty God, saying, look at that guy, look at that gal, You know, I suffered and died for them, and they're just making the wrong decisions and all the rest. But 
uh, oh God, I, I suffered and died for that person and I'm going to intercede on their behalf. They're cleansed by my blood. And the father says, case dismissed. <clears throat> if you've participated in your salvation, sure you can lose it. If you're simply a recipient of it, how can you? If you received it from the God who is not uh, an Indian giver. Oh, by the way, that's the wrong term. I, there was a Native American in the last class and I offended him. <laughs> These are just... Martha, you? Oh, that explains a lot. Uh, part, part. Yeah, so I don't mean any. But these are things, subtle insensitivities that we don't mean. My, my point is, God doesn't take things back. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't make promises and breaks them. That's, that's my whole point. I think it's a better way to put it. And anyway, uh, So I counseled with a man not long ago, and I think his situation was similar to this lady's, Teresa, with which I opened. He doubted his salvation, uh, but as I examined him, he has all the marks of salvation. In fact, the mere fact that he's concerned about his salvation tells me he's saved. <laughs> Non-believers are not concerned about whether they're saved or not. <laughs> I wish they would be, but they're not. In fact, one of the interesting, humorous evidences of salvation is that you're concerned about it. <laughs> so this man, who to me showed all the evidences of salvation, lacked assurance thereof. Why? I think it had to do with his dad. A lot of times the issue is emotional, not theological. He had a distant dad, a cold dad, a non-affectionate dad, a very critical dad. And he thinks his heavenly dad is like his earthly dad. <laughs> so he thinks on any given day he's not getting good grades with his heavenly dad. <clears throat> I suspect that was the case with this lady, Teresa, too, though she had a Southern Baptist pastor dad. They can be some of the worst dads. <laughs> uh, I suspect she's conforming the image of heavenly father and the image of earthly father. But we can't do that. He's different. He's the perfect dad nobody in this room ever had. In fact, of him, it says, though, you, the, 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 though your father and mother forsake you, the Lord will take me up. <laughs> he has taken you up when you were ugly. At your worst. You were not lovable at all, morally, ethically. That's when he took us. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But first he waited until we promised, I'll try harder, I'll do better. Mm -hmm. Nothing. He didn't ask us to make any of those commitments because he knows we'll break them. <laughs> Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, see. Religion doesn't like that. Religion wants us obligated to the religious leaders, to the religious rituals, to all the rest. Jesus wants us obligated to him in devotion, not fear. In fact, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love of the Father towards us is meant to cast out fear of the loss of any of the things he has promised to give us freely by grace. If you're struggling with this matter and want to talk privately, I'd be pleased to. Shoot me a text, email, something like that. Let's talk about it privately. If you've done everything, however, required of you to do in order to be redeemed, then don't let the evil one call into question your salvation. What is it you're supposed to do to be saved? 
you're supposed to accept the Savior. <laughs> you're supposed to accept the fact that you have a sin problem. It has separated you from the Father. And Jesus came and he solved it. It's not that complicated. To believe is not just a head thing. It's to lean into. It's to lean on. Oh, Lord Jesus, I lean into you as my Savior. I'm not looking to me to save myself. I'm looking to you. Grace. Grace. It's the gospel of grace, is it not? Gospel of grace. So the writer, can you see, is not addressing true believers at all. He's, it's a mixed crowd, and he's singling out that subgroup in the congregation of those who would go about saying they're Christians but show no of the evidence thereof. And then when it gets hot, persecution is on the rise, then they're tempted to turn entirely away from Christ and go back to their old religious ways. That's the group he's addressing in Hebrews. That's the context. Okay. I know in my heart I am right. You have to sort it out for yourself. It's a big issue. Many denominations do not hold to eternal security. Uh, numbers don't determine truth. Good handling of Scripture determines truth. Good handling of Scripture. Now, people say, Stuart, you shared a bunch of verses. There are as many verses that prove the other point of view. Really? Show me. If you handle any verse of Scripture in context, I think it will lead to the point of view I just shared with you. What Jesus gave, you cannot forfeit. Well, can a true believer walk away from his salvation? Don't force me into that goofy question. A true believer won't. That's the point. True believer won't. A true believer on a given day can blow off church, blow off the Bible, and blow off God. And the true believer will be miserable for it. Won't be able to casually walk away. And a true believer in the end will cross the finish line. Why? He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why. Lord Jesus, thanks for everything. Security, safety, everything could be lost here. Health, wealth, but not salvation. Because to do that would mean we'd have to, we'd have to lose you. It would mean you'd have to lose your reliability, truthfulness, sincerity, sinless character. Because you've made promises to us. If you will not or cannot keep them, wow, that denigrates you, your character. But you're true. Thy word is true. And so I pray, oh God, if we're struggling in this area, we might not misdiagnose it. It may be an emotional matter, not a theological one. I pray if there be someone in that category, that one would seek help. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you who began this marvelous free gift of salvation in us will complete it. We look forward to singing your praises, not just here, but forever in eternity, for saving us to the uttermost. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. See you next time.